Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our look at the book of Deuteronomy, and this week the team will be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 15 and the laws about slavery. Before we get into the episode, we wanted to keep you aware of some upcoming courses at Theopolis. One is our in-person intensive class on the Exodus that will be taught by Alistair Roberts and will be from September 18th through the 22nd. And for more information, there's a link down there in the show notes. We also have an upcoming online workshop, which runs for six weeks for two hours on Saturdays on Jane Austen and the power of narrative. That course will be taught by Lita Sundet, and there is more information in the show notes. As always, we want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and we hope that you are encouraged and sharpened by this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, Jeff Myers, and James B. John discussing Deuteronomy 15. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, James B. John, and Alistair Roberts. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background a recording, and we'll be editing everything and delivering it to you. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we are in the middle of a series of studies in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, and we've been going through the central chapters of Deuteronomy, the long stretch of Deuteronomy that's organized according to the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. And we have been talking about the Sabbath laws. The Sabbath, obviously, is a law concerning work and rest, and uh, in the expansions of the Sabbath laws that you find both in Exodus uh, to some extent in Leviticus and, and in Deuteronomy, that pattern of work and rest uh, gets expanded into a vision, uh, not just for the, the timing of work and rest, but uh, expanded into a vision of how Israel's economy and society is supposed to or- be organized. In the last episode, we looked at the beginning of, of Deuteronomy 15, and the first 11 verses of Deuteronomy 15 are covering what's called the, the Shemitah law or the a year of release, a seventh year pattern. It's a the seven year links it to the Sabbath, obviously. The Sabbath not only patterns the week for Israel, but the Sabbath patterns uh, weeks of years. And then uh, with the Jubilee law in Leviticus 25, it, pattern, it patterns much longer stretches. You have seven weeks of years, and then the Jubilee law comes. So the, the, that Sabbath pattern of six plus one that comes out of the creation is uh, found uh, in these expanded versions of the Sabbath. That's that's what's going on in the year of release. Any poor Israelite, a poor brother who gets uh, a loan from a wealthier brother in Israel to help him uh, get over a, a stretch of poverty, a stretch of, uh, of disaster, uh, when he has needs, he's supposed to get a loan from his brother. The brothers are not supposed to withhold a loan. They're supposed to give generously. And then the law of release is that in the seventh year, the sabbatical year, they're supposed to release that loan, uh, and uh, the poor brother is supposed to set be set free from that uh, that position of subordination. The word for creditor at the beginning of chapter fifteen is Baal. Uh, he's the lord of uh, the lord of the loan. He can't remain a Baal forever. He has to he has to enact an exodus. Uh, and the same thing is going on when we get to chapter uh, chapter fifteen, verse twelve. A related law that doesn't have to do with debt slavery uh, per se, but with slavery but a form of bond servanthood uh, where somebody has gotten into typically into some kind of sometimes into a, a, a situation of debt that they can't pay off or they are in desperate need of uh, recovery 
uh, they owe something, or sometimes it's a matter of working off what they owe for compensation, recompense for a crime. Uh, they're put into a state of debt slavery, or it's not debt slavery, but put into a state of slavery or bond servanthood. But like the debts, that's only can last for seven years. Debts are canceled in the seventh year for brothers. Uh, if one of your brothers becomes poor and sells himself in order to uh, work off a debt or to work off some restitution that he has to make, he also has to be released in the seventh year. The Sabbath rule, it's also an Exodus rule. And we'll see, as we did last time, that in the details, the detailed way that uh, this law is described, there are allusions to to the Exodus event. There's an explicit allusion to Exodus in verse 15. Israel's supposed to treat slaves with the memory that they themselves had been slaves in Egypt. and But also in the details, the way that they release slaves, the timing of the release of slaves and so on, harkens back to the Exodus from Egypt. So Israel's supposed to keep Exodus going. They are released at the Exodus, and they're an Exodus people in their origins, and their whole life as a people is supposed to be organized and formed around the reality of Exodus. Uh, and this is one of the places where that's uh, that's brought out. Uh, I, I guess we can start with the general question or general issue. Uh, this is one of several places in Torah that talk about uh, slavery. That's a, obviously a hot-button topic in our culture, and um, the Bible is often uh, dismissed and condemned and mocked and uh, uh, attacked for endorsing slavery and not for eliminating slavery, but for providing uh, providing for a form of slavery and allowing a form of slavery within Israel. So uh, we can start with that, the general question of the, the role of slavery in the Bible and the place of slavery in the Bible. Any general thoughts on how that, that institution and uh, the idea of slavery works out in, in Scripture generally? Well, one of the things I'd just remind my people of is that the word slavery, of course, in the modern world has this huge pejorative kind of meaning to it, attachment to it, um, chattel slavery, um, the way um, people were treated, especially, uh, you know, in the 18th and 19th centuries and so on. We, um, But but in the, in the scriptures, it's more like service and servant, uh, indentured servitude, and the buying and selling of slaves as chattel is, or and and the stealing of people is explicitly forbidden. It's it's a capital crime. Um, so I mean, the first thing to say is there's what's going on here is not the kind of slavery that that we abhor. Um, it's more service and servitude, and and also it's. It's a some the way it's laid out here and in Exodus and in other places, it's a somewhat humane way of dealing with um, uh, people who find themselves in difficult circumstances and need help, um, and so they sell themselves uh, to another to another Hebrew man to another Israelite, and they get help for six years. They're able to to work they're able to be provided for they're they're sent out not empty-handed uh after six years they're furnished liberally um out of the flock of the family that they've been uh, serving uh and um and that that ensures that there there will never be a permanent kind of class of people that are slaves 
you're a slave for a time, not permanently. I think this also goes back to what we were talking about at the end of the last podcast when we we saw what it was a, an apparent contradiction in chapter 15, verse 4 and uh, verse 11. There will be no poor among you. And then verse 11, there never ceased to be poor in the land. And it, it, it seems to me that what's going on here is that, uh, verse 4 and 5 are connected. If, if you strictly obey the voice of the Lord, then there won't be a, a permanent class of people who are, are poor, perpetually poor, helpless, hopeless. Because if you're following the release laws, with regard to debts or with regard to uh, servants, then you, there's going to be this turnover all the time. Um, and people who may become poor for a time uh, are not going to be, be poor permanently because there's always going to be help if they obey these commandments. And in the same way for these servants, um, you can be a servant for a time, but there's not going to be a permanent class of slaves in Israel, because that would be an Egyptian-style social order, and that's just not going to be. Um, you can't do that. I think there is one um, case where there is a longer situation of slavery, and it's presented as a positive thing, and that's in Exodus 21, um, 5 and 6. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. And having that sort of law, among the other laws of slave release and um, the treatment of proper treatment of slaves, it seems that the system of slavery envisaged humane treatment to the point that someone who would struggle with providence for their own family, who would struggle with independent um, living, can find security with a loving master. And the analogy that Paul draws in Galatians 4 between a child and a slave, I think is a helpful one. There is something of the childlike state to the person who's in slavery. They're under the direct um, instruction and command of another. They can be physically disciplined. There is a limitation upon their freedom and autonomy. And yet that situation can be within scripture, a situation that is a positive one. And we have examples of um, servants that held, held positions of honor who were seen as um, having great standing within their house. We might think about um, the way that Eliezer of Damascus was going to inherit his master Abraham's house, or Abraham presenting his servant, whether that was Eliezer of Damascus again, but presenting him with the task of looking for a, a wife for his son. Those sorts of responsibilities, those sorts of um, positions within the house indicate that this is not a straightforwardly oppressive institution. It's an institution that in certain circumstances was providing a safety net that um, you would not otherwise have in a society that was more familial in character. If you did not have that familial structure around you, slavery 
was an option. And that was not necessarily a negative option for many people. It would be preferable to um, independent living within a society where there was no safety net. Yeah, that that uh, that same uh, rule is uh, found in in Deuteronomy 15, verses 16 and 17, with the piercing of the ear, the servant's ear is open to his master's voice. He becomes a house a permanent household slave. But it, it's it's uh, important in both Exodus and Deuteronomy that the choice is the is the uh, slave. He's he's about to be released, and he decides he doesn't want to be released in the seventh year, and so he's treated as a as an agent of his own destiny he can decide to go or not uh, and he's not uh, he's not forced into uh, not forced to stay and i think one one of the things that i think is uh, jeff emphasized this the fact that this is a temporary state uh, a safety net as alistair said it's something that's there as a as a provision if if we're talking about people who have uh, committed property crimes and they can't pay off the double restitution that's required, then they go into service to the person that they defrauded or stole from. Then they're being held responsible for the crime. They're having to make restitution, but they're making restitution in the form of labor rather than the form of rather than the form of money. But it's not a it's not a permanent state. It's not like I know that Aristotle is more complex than this on on uh, slavery and nature, but he does talk about the idea of a natural slave. There's certain uh, certain people that have a natural inclination to slavery or natural status as slaves, but that's not the picture here. It's a it's a temporary state. Somebody can become a slave, but that's a decision that he makes uh, as a it's a decision he makes as a brother, and uh, the decision is to become part of the family of his master, as as Alistair emphasized. I think it's worth mentioning that anyone who wants to really dig into this a bit, James Jordan's master's thesis at Westminster Theological Seminary was on this topic, slavery in biblical perspective. And um, I think it's still available somewhere. I have a PDF of it, but um, I, I've I found his analysis to be very helpful. I think he has some thoughts on this also in his Law of the Covenant book, in his commentary on the, what is it, Exodus um, 21 through 23, 24. But his master's thesis, I think, is worth pursuing if anybody wants to to dig into this a bit. Yeah, of course, in the U.S., the uh, the big looming uh, issue of slavery goes back to a pre-Civil War situation of uh, chattel slavery and a, racial, a largely racially focused chattel slavery. You do have, sometimes you have whites that are in a similar, similar kind of situation, but it's mainly a a black uh, slaves are black and slaves are in permanent uh, permanent position, which doesn't match this at all. It's um, one of the ironies of uh, Southern history that uh, you have a, a strong emphasis on uh, a strong Sabbatarian emphasis among Southern whites, Southern Presbyterians in particular, uh, and yet they don't acknowledge the by and large they don't acknowledge the sabbatical rules for slavery that are. That are presented here that the that um, uh, they should be releasing their slaves or releasing their slaves in a way that makes them gives them the capacity to be productive uh, productive citizens uh, rather than keeping as chattel slavery. Uh, there is there are provisions. Uh, do, uh, Leviticus twenty five talks about slaves that can be permanent slaves. Slaves that are not brothers can be held permanently as slaves. 
And that's not the choice of the, of, of the slave in that case. It's a choice of the master. But I wonder how that worked. Here's my, I wondered if that actually works out ever in Israel's history. If you put the pieces together, this seems to be the process. If you go back to, go back to Genesis 17, when Abraham circumcises his household, he has uh, three, at least 318 fighting men in his entourage. We know that from the war against the five kings earlier in Genesis. So when he circumcises his household, at that point, he has one blood descendant, and that's Ishmael. Isaac has not been born. Abraham himself gets circumcised. And then the rest of the circumcised people are members of his household. But they become part of the covenant people by virtue of circumcision. So if that's the pattern that Israel follows, then if a, if a, an Israelite purchases a slave and that slave becomes a part of his household, would he circumcise that slave? And would that slave then become an Israelite, a brother, and come under these rules uh, for manumission and would have to be released in the seventh year? So it seems like there's uh, a certain pressure. I don't know if it worked out in practice, but it seems like there's a certain pressure toward no chattel slavery at all because uh, Israelites would be uh, bringing their slaves under the covenant uh, by circumcision. And then those slaves would have to be let go in the seventh year. We talk a lot about um, Sabbatarian principles within scripture and think primarily about taking rest for ourselves. But reading these chapters, it seems that the prominent theme throughout is giving rest to others. And um, also we'll get into the feasts and celebrations of the Lord's great deliverances in history. But this theme of giving rest to others really seems to be the prominent element of sabbatical teaching, the various commandments that unpack the Sabbath principle, whether in Exodus 21 to 23 or in these chapters in Deuteronomy. That theme does tend to get lost in later discussions of keeping the Sabbath. Yeah, that's a that's that's a way of saying what I said about the Southern Sabbatarians. I think that's exactly what's happening. Sabbatarian uh, practice becomes a matter of taking rest and uh, enforcing that day of rest, but without recognizing the what really is the 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 bulk of the Sabbath command itself is about giving rest, passing on the rest we've been given to those who are under our care. One thing I wanted to highlight it has been mentioned already, but uh, verse fourteen. Uh, 13 and 14, you, when you set him free, when you let him go, you shall not send him away empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally from your flock and from your threshing floor and from your wine vat. You shall give it to him as Yahweh your God has blessed you. So when the slave goes free, this is one of the Exodus motifs that we have in the embedded in the law. When Israel went free from Egypt, Yahweh ensured that they didn't go out empty-handed. They went to door-to-door to their Egyptian neighbors, and their Egyptian neighbors gave them goods and so they plundered the egyptians in this case it's the on the it's the burden of the uh, slave owner to furnish the slave with what he needs to make a fresh start so you furnish him from your flock you furnish him according as the lord has blessed you verse 14 says so that seems almost like a proportionate some kind of a proportion of the uh the blessing that has been given i mean after all the slave has been has contributed to that blessing by lending his labor to the master's land and flocks and and uh, his his productivity. And so when you send him out, he gets a share of the productivity that he actually contributed to. 
So you shall give him liberally. There's an there's a, an emphasis on the generosity. Uh, he has a fresh start with a flock, with uh, grain from the threshing floor, from the wine vat. So there's an element of festivity and joy. And he goes out with something like a, a, a certain amount of capital to start his own, to recover and to start his own uh, life. So there's, I think there's a couple of things that uh, we can draw from this. One is, this makes it clear that the choice of staying with the master is the servant's. It's a, it's not the master's choice. Uh, the master could kind of uh, coerce the slave into staying by, you know, uh, you know, if you go out, you're not going to have anything. If you stay within my house, then we'll take care of you. You know, this is this is kind of Pharaoh's uh, pitch to Israel. Uh, if you can, if you stay within Egypt, then you can have leeks and melons and all the good things of Egypt. If you go out, you're not going to have anything because you can be out in the wilderness. The Lord ensures that that's not the case because Israel goes out with plunder. Uh, and the master is not supposed to be like Pharaoh. He's not supposed to uh, manipulate his slave into staying by refusing to give him uh, what he needs to make a fresh start for himself. So there's that uh, kind of economic incentive aspect to the to the rule. And I think it's, it's uh, significant, too, that the term, don't send him away empty-handed, that term in verse uh, 13, don't send him away empty. That comes up elsewhere. I think it comes up in chapter 16 when it's talking about the festival laws. Uh, no one is supposed to appear before the Lord empty-handed. No one is supposed to appear empty. You're supposed to bring offerings. You're supposed to bring tithes. You're supposed to bring gifts to the Lord. And so in one sense, you're furnishing the former slave with the capital that he needs to make a fresh economic start on his own. But you're also furnishing him with a kind of liturgical capital. Uh, he's he's sent out so that he, he can participate uh, fully in the festivities of Israel. So he's kind of fully, he's been participating in the festivities of Israel because he's been in the household of his master and his master shares his goods as uh, as Deuteronomy 12 and Deuteronomy uh, 16 uh, require. Uh, the servants participate in, in the festivity of the household. But even when he goes out, he's giving these he's given these goods so that he can fully participate in the worship of Israel not just in the economic life of Israel. He's given liturgical capital as well as economic. And this can help us also to appreciate the fact that slavery in these situations is not necessarily punitive. It's something that can be restorative. It's a situation, it comes in a situation, for instance, of improvidence or someone who's hit hard times and they're unable to get by. And then for a number of years, they can serve for a provident and wise master who is able to equip them with the skills by which they would be able to provide for themselves. And at the end, there's a sort of inheritance. Um, they're treated like a member of the household, like a son that's being sent out, not with the full measure of the inheritance that a son would receive, but nonetheless with significant starting capital. And at that point, they are um, given the means by which they can avoid the situation that originally led them into slavery. And so much much of this legislation is designed towards the end of um, providence, of independence, of everyone being under their own vine and fig tree, of a situation that does not replicate the dynamics of the house of slavery or bondage that Egypt represented. And it's important to think about the house of slavery as the description of Egypt, not just as the description of what Egypt was for Israel, but what Egypt was for all of the people within it, a situation where people were under the 
dominance of the political powers of um structures of masters and um those who are serfs under them and what you have in israel is a situation that is constantly designed to move past that and yet provide for those who fall into that state and not just write them out of the system and these legislations this legislation i think is also once we've understood that not just to be seen as permission of the practice of slavery rather it's a regulating of the practice of slavery towards the enjoyment of freedom and that as it's placed under the sabbath commandment i think expresses part of the impetus of this teaching that i think explains why um christians have wanted to abolish slavery it's seen as something that is a um form of social organization that ideally should be moved beyond and it may be necessary in certain extreme situations um there are situations of debt of um some situations of um for prisoners and those who had committed crimes and situations for prisoners of war and we practice some form of slavery in, in some of those cases still today but ideally these are situations that are edge cases and we're wanting to move towards freedom and getting people back on their feet and enjoying the reality of sabbath that the lord has for all of his people that sabbath and freedom link um alistair is, is very helpful um we've been going through the exodus uh, church recently um the exodus story i should say um and it's very striking the way in which the thing is set up by this slightly odd sounding request can we go three days um journey into the wilderness to worship the lord there and i've sort of always wondered what would have happened had pharaoh said yes like you know how would things have played out but either way i mean what clearly happens then is that slavery in egypt is associated not with freedom to worship the lord um as as israel should have been worshiping and this seems to think connect up with peter's point insofar as the um the slave there in deuteronomy 15 is not to go out um empty-handed but is to go out with things whereby he can participate in israel's worship and liturgical cycle and, and so forth and then likewise in exodus um three it's, it's explicit isn't it you know when you go out you shall not go out empty empty-handed same um word rather you're to ask or each woman is to ask from for her neighbors silver and gold which which is of course the raw material of all the the um tabernacle etc um accessories built in the wilderness and and so um yeah freedom is is explicitly freedom to worship freedom to participate in this whole uh liturgical life of israel i have to wonder what a Israelite family or a more well-to-do Israelite would think would happen if they didn't follow these laws. Um, so you have the law of release of debt, uh, and the promise is that you'll be blessed. The Lord will bless you in all your work and all you undertake. Verse ten, and in verse tw- and then in verses twelve through eighteen, also you have a Hebrew family, Hebrew. Uh, head of household maybe who brings in a servant for whatever reason for a time what if they decided not to release 
the slave? What would happen? There doesn't, there's, there's no state or civil kind of punishment attached to this, but you have to wonder, uh, especially thinking about Egypt and what happened to Egypt when Pharaoh would not release the Israelites. Uh, there's a number of plagues on them. And also in verse uh, 14, uh, 13 and 14, uh, n- don't let him go out empty-handed, furnish him liberally out of your flock. I can't, I wonder whether an Israelite reading this would think back also to, to Jacob under Laban. And Jacob served Laban for, if I'm not mistaken, 14 years, seven and seven. And Laban was uh, a tightwad uh, and stingy uh, and wouldn't uh, give, changed his wages and uh, tried to cheat him wouldn't release him. But then you have a really smart, cagey kind of uh, servant like Jacob, who is basically able to to spoil uh, Laban and come out with an enormous amount of, of wealth uh, in his exodus. And so a Hebrew servant owner or servant manager, however you want to phrase that, when the seventh year would come up, would have to think about these things, you know, and have to have a lot of trust in the Lord that if he does this, he's not only doing what the Lord did for them back in Egypt, that might be a little bit remote as time goes on, but also, um, okay, I remember what happened to Egypt and Pharaoh, um, and I don't want that to happen to me, uh, and I don't want to be a Laban. Uh, I want to be um, generous and open-handed, uh, and so I'm going to avoid it. But but it's always in in this chapter, um, the whole chapter, including firstborn males thing that we're going to get into. It's always the freedom of the individual householder, the freedom of the s- servant, if he decides to leave or not. There's just a lot of lot of responsibility placed on these individuals and these families within Israel. And the expectation is that they're going to trust Yahweh, have faith in him, uh, and recognize that it's in their best interest to obey these laws. Yeah, that, uh, that was going to be my answer to your initial question. There, there's no apparent civil penalty for failure to obey it, but Yahweh enforces it. I think there's a more general principle there that there are any number of rules, laws in the Torah uh, for which there are no civil penalties attached. But uh, the system the system is designed to work uh, as a theocracy where Yahweh is ruling, and Yahweh is the ultimate judge and enforcer of his law. And so, yeah, exactly. If they, if they act like Pharaoh, they'll be treated like Pharaoh. If they love slavery, then they'll become slaves. Uh, and uh, it's a different, a different, different set of laws. But the, in in Chronicles, the reason for the exile is because Israel had neglected the the the, the land, the land the Sabbath laws. They didn't give the land rest, and so Yahweh enforces a land rest, a Sabbath rest for the land by put, sending them into exile to make up for all the times that they neglected to give the land rest. So the, I think similar things. Similar thing would go on with the uh, treatment of slaves. We we could also think about the example of um, Jeremiah thirty four, where um, the city's under siege and Zedekiah and everyone else evidently associates the release of their 
slaves with some sort of blessing. So they decide on the seventh year to proclaim liberty for all their slaves. And then it says in the very next verse, doesn't it? You know, but after doing that, you turned around and each of you took back um, his slaves. And and the Lord then says, you know, therefore, um, you know, because you didn't release your slaves, I, I will release um, the sword against you and and obviously they they go into exile don't they so there there obviously was um an expectation that the lord would bless um that kind of activity and then in the case of jeremiah at least there was an explicit punishment from god when when they didn't or or when really it looks like they tried to get uh get the blessing from god um by proclaiming the release and then have their slaves as well and um yeah they couldn't have their cake and eat it, could they? Yeah, I guess I, uh, just following up on that thought, uh, I think it's worth drawing a uh, principle for the new covenant, um, the new covenant Israel, which is the church. And I believe strongly in the exercise of church discipline. Uh, I think the church is uh, weakened by the fact that it doesn't exercise discipline diligently these days. Uh, but uh, any pastor knows that there are all kinds of things that go on within a church that that never come to light, uh, that can't be disciplined in any kind of formal way because they aren't clear enough. Uh, one of the things that uh, I did in situations like that as a pastor is to pray for clarity. I pray I would pray for things to come to light, uh, and uh, it's a it's a prayer that the Lord um, sometimes, to my dismay, is very willing to answer. He does bring things to light that. Uh, you, you're kind of suspicious that something going on in this family, that uh, there's something untoward happening in that house, but you can't put your finger on it. Nothing's come to light. And uh, the Lord does expose things. But uh, the point I want to make is the point about the, the Lord being the, the Lord of his people. Uh, and the Lord is the ultimate judge. Uh, and leaders in the church can, in one sense, uh, relax uh, uh, in that. We don't have to be able to discern every dark place in the uh, in the members uh, members of our churches. We don't have to uh, expose everything. The Lord will expose some things. Some things remain hidden, but the Lord is still dealing with them because he's the Lord of the church. Uh, and there are just going to be some things that are not uh, humanly enforceable. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention, I want to go back to Alistair's comments about the contemporary slavery and the situation that we find ourselves in and just highlight that point because I think, again, so much hostility to the Bible as uh, as a permitting a form of servitude. I mean, even with all the qualifications that we've made, there would be some who would object that any kind of servitude at all is illegitimate because it's uh, subjecting somebody to another human being, and that's that's somehow a violation of their person that they're subjected to another human being in the way that even a temporary slave would be. So, um, I mean, even with all the qualifications, you're going to have these kind of these kind of objections and hostility to the biblical picture. But I think it's worth considering the alternative. What 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 is the alternative that we're currently faced with? Uh, think about something like um, property crimes. Uh, this is a point that Charles Colson made. He was uh, he would appeal to these laws as an alternative to uh, the way that we uh, prosecute and punish uh, thieves and people who commit property crimes. They're frequently jailed without giving restitution. That means that the victim of their crimes is never compensated. He gets have the satisfaction of seeing the seeing the thief uh, go to jail, but that's different from being compensated for what was what he was what was lost. Uh, the thief goes to jail, and jail is not a place of rehabilitation. <laughs> 
it's a place for it's a it's a school of criminality frequently uh and so a thief goes to jail gets hardened in his in his uh in his criminality and comes out worse than he came in that he went in i know that's not the case in in every case but that that's a common story and why not institute something that's uh, a modern equivalent of bond servanthood where the the person who has committed a property crime is forced to uh, work off the the restitution that he owes to the to the victim uh, and through that working off he's taking responsibility he's learning what it means to take responsibility for his actions uh, perhaps is learning skills that will allow him to be uh, a productive uh, non-criminal in the future uh, and uh, it's it's compensation to the victim it's rehabilitation for the for the uh, perpetrator that's a there seems to be a much better system it would have to be modified Certainly, we couldn't call it uh, slavery. It would have to be modified in a modern situation, but uh, Colson would talk about alternative forms of, of criminal, uh, uh, criminal punishment that would, uh, that would be mo- more modeled on Deuteronomy 15. Or you think about somebody goes into debt. You know, goes into debt. Uh, in the past, they would go to debtor's prison, which just seems like the, the worst possible outcome. Uh, you, you owe something. You can't, you're not put in a position where you can repay it because you put it to debtor's prison the person who to whom you owe it is not uh is not compensated uh but if you have something like this system where somebody goes into debt and they're in and they can't repay it instead of going to something like a, a bankruptcy uh, which releases them without any any compensation to their creditor uh, they go into something resembling this kind of bond servanthood a temporary service to the person that they owe and they work it off over the course of several years uh, again, they're learning to res- take responsibility for their actions. Uh, they're learning skills that will benefit them in the future. The person who is owed the money is uh, compensated for it. So the the biblical picture is actually much more humane than the system we have for to, to take care of these kinds of uh, social disruptions currently. And that's apart from the fact that we have uh, it's a it's just a myth, as Alistair pointed out. It's it's a it's just a myth to think that slavery has been eliminated from the world. It takes different forms uh, in the in the modern world, for sure. But it's there's still various forms of slavery that exist, uh, and uh, these laws are are still very relevant, especially in situations where you have something like actual chattel slavery that still operates, uh, and uh, the church has a way of uh, not uh, of redeeming that institution and providing a, a way of, for people to get out of slave situations. Uh, that uh, doesn't doesn't involve just a uh, revolutionary emancipation, but instead is able to rehabilitate and bring people out of slavery into uh, into freedom and into productive life. Your earlier comment about your prayer as a pastor, Peter, my prayer is, Lord, expose it, but not yet. Wait till I have some time. <laughs> yeah, nice Augustinian prayer. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Wait till I'm ready. Um, Also, your comments about how we could reform our justice, uh, the way we do justice, reminds me of C.S. Lewis's essay on the humanitarian theory of punishment. Um, And one time, uh, years ago, well, actually, when I first started seminary back in 1983 at Covenant Seminary, I went to a lunch that was put on by an Old Testament professor. And the lunch was just talking about the very thing you mentioned, prisons and punishment 
and what's merciful and what's helpful and what's best. And, and the professor was talking about how much more humanitarian uh, corporal, pun corporal punishment is, you know, like with rods and other sorts of things, um, similar to children. Uh, they're spanked, they're disciplined, and then they walk away. Uh, they, it's not a permanent mark on them like the prison system often is. You're a felon, you know, you're, you're going to wear that label for the rest of your life. And I, I find that fascinating that at, at the time, this is in the early 80s, uh, that there were a lot of evangelicals and others who were actually talking about these kinds of things uh, and how um, the Bible might be applied to, uh, you know, justice and and punishment in our society i guess uh, just around uh, that discussion um we're not in a position uh, there are i mean there are reform efforts within the criminal justice system uh, uh forms of restitution that have become more uh more um, common i think uh, partly because of people like colson who have, have advocated for that kind of reform uh but um in one sense we don't have to await a change of civil law in order to do some of these things. Again, we, at the beginning of our Deuteronomy studies, uh, made the comment that one of the interests we have in studying Deuteronomy is to look at it as a kind of training for church leaders, as a to guide elders and pastors in ruling the church and in forming good judgments. And uh, I'm I'm sure there are ways. I don't have any specifics in mind right at the moment. I'm sure there are ways to organize programs within the church that uh, resemble in some way that are inspired in some way by this system. So you know, we have obviously have poor people in churches. People have uh, uh, are poor because of natural disasters, uh, the sicknesses or, you know, their business collapses for, for reasons that they can't possibly, uh, they can't possibly anticipate or prevent. Uh, even people who are uh, poor because of some lack of, lack of self-discipline, they, you know, they, they never learned to work. They never learned to show up uh, and do the kinds of things that you need to be a, a good employee and to and to uh, make a living. Uh, surely there are ways that we could design programs, and I know a lot of churches do this. I don't think they do it consciously modeled on Deuteronomy 15, but uh, a way of uh, uh, of organizing church programs that do the same kind of rehabilitative work, uh, and even you know. Uh, you have property disputes within churches. You have people who are in business together in churches. Uh, things go south, and uh, rather than go to civil to the civil law, which I think Paul forbids, there's a way to work it out within the church. But work it out within the church in a way that uh, satisfies. If there's a victim in the situation, satisfies the needs of the victim, uh, ministers to the needs of the person who failed, uh, who somehow failed in the in this economic relationship. Um, and something that modeled something modeled on Deuteronomy 15 seems to be applicable within within church government as well as civil government. I've always thought that Paul in First Timothy 5, when he's talking about widows and having uh, a a kind of widow role uh, with certain requirements and certain expectations and certain ways to help them. Uh, I always thought that was something of an application of these kinds of things. It's not exactly. It's more on the principle. The principle is you have you have uh, widows that need help, um, and you're not, we're not going to make them servants or anything like that. But they do, in some sense, end up serving other people 
uh, for a time until they, if possible, find another husband or not. Um, and so there's, so I've, I've always thought also that Paul's way of dealing with widows in First Timothy 5 is a model for dealing with other sorts of needs in the church uh, as well, other sorts of people who have similar kinds of experiences, similar kinds of, uh, uh, they're, they're deprived of, of one thing or other, of, of, of work, of, of job, of family, or they lose their family, whatever. They can be, they can, you know, anybody can be, quote unquote, a widow in that sense and need some help. And I think Paul lays down some important uh, principles about how to help them, properly help them, how to show mercy to them, uh, mercy that's truly mercy, um, and it will help them in the long run. I find Alistair's point that um, slavery has uh, re-emerged in in so many different forms to be a, a very helpful one. I mean, if we um, suppose we sort of demarcate employment from slavery um, for the sake of like how we're using the terms at the moment um, by the lack of an opt-out clause in the case of um, slavery. So I, I can leave a job if I um, fancy it, but I can't just opt out of slavery. Um, then, there are so many ways in which slavery is still uh, enforced in in the lack of opt out clauses um, today. I mean, I'm not necessarily saying that we're enslaved to our governments, but I mean, if I just decide, look, you know, I'm not into paying tax or ni or any of the things that the government does with my money, so I'd like to just uh, set off with my church and start out on you, and we won't claim any of the state benefits but we'll just be our own um independent lots you know and um th that wouldn't be a, a legal thing to do you know and and there are so many kind of reasonable things that governments for instance will permit um at the moment i mean home schooling isn't legal in various places in um europe at, at the moment you know there's no sort of opt out for i don't want my children educated in a state school and um yeah th these just very um restrictive um uh conditions still exist um in in the modern world just in different different forms different vehicles right and then if you if you extend the scope more widely to other parts of the world i mean obviously you have places like uh, north korea china where slavery is um you know, a much more overtly practiced. Uh, uh, Jeff mentioned the uh, end of the chapter, which uh, turns to the uh, consecration of the firstborn, and um, there's a, a couple of a couple of regulations here that concern the firstborn. The firstborn is claimed uh, in Passover because the Lord redeemed the firstborn of Israel. The Lord claims the firstborn of Israel. Uh, he uh, claims the firstborn sons of Israel, uh, and that's uh, the Levites are substituted those for those firstborn sons in in the book of Numbers. There's a there's a rite that designates the the Levites as the uh, as the replacement substitutes for the firstborn sons of Israel. Uh, and then the Lord also claims firstborn animals in the ex, in the Passover. So in, in one sense, the the end of verse the end of chapter 15 is anticipating what's going to come in chapter 16, which is a calendar of festivals. Uh, we'll look at that in the next uh, podcast episode. So when you bring you bring the firstborn males uh, as part of your as part of your uh, worship 
you bring it to the place that the Lord chooses. That's the central sanctuary that we've talked about a number of times. Uh, but then the, the laws also make provision for defective animals. So you have a firstborn animal that doesn't qualify as a sacrificial animal. Uh, Leviticus 21 and 22 lay out uh, the physical deformities that disqualify an animal from being a sacrificial animal. You have to have an animal without blemish. And Leviticus 21 and 22 describe what a blemish is. Uh, and uh, there's a, a couple of examples given here in verse 21. If the animal has any blemish, uh, lameness or blindness, or any serious blemish, it can't be sacrificed. Um, but I think the, the interesting uh, e extension of this rule uh, is that this animal can still be eaten. This animal can still be slaughtered, but it's not slaughtered at the central sanctuary. So firstborns in general with unblemished firstborns are brought to the central sanctuary, offered to the Lord, uh, and then uh, offered presumably as a peace offering where the worshipers are going to eat part of it. But then blemished animals that can't be offered to sacrifice are still slaughtered. Their blood is poured out on the ground and they're, they're eaten within the gates. And it's almost as if the, the different towns have become, that are scattered all around Israel, have become kind of outposts of uh, temple festivity. Uh, when you have an unblemished animal, you take it to the to the tabernacle and you offer it, you have festivity there. But then if you can't offer it there, you can still have a feast, you can still eat it, uh, but you eat it in your gates. And it's as if the, the joy of the temple is flowing out to the corners of the land uh, and uh, the festivity of of the temple is uh, envelops uh, the whole nation. Yeah, we, we saw a similar move in uh, chapter uh, 14, actually, wasn't it? At the end of the last chapter, whereby the um, provision that is um, earmarked to be enjoyed with the Levite, you know, and, and so in that sense, you, you might say is priestly, is, is holy, is to be enjoyed by the sojourner um, as, as well. And so there is that kind of... Um, uh, yeah, that that outflow and that benefit to to the the um, land as a whole. The feast takes priority over the economic value of these animals. I, I think we, in the modern world, we forget that these animals were valuable, uh, and the firstborn animal. Uh, well, what you're doing basically is you're imposing an economic loss on the Israelite family. Uh, this animal could not be trained to do any work. Could not. You can't shear it. Um, you you can't use it. You can't use it at all for uh, you know the value it might bring to your family. Um, you, it's it has to be kind of wasted, if you will, wasted on feasting, and no, you can't complain about that. Uh, and so, what is that all about? This requires, I think an enormous amount of future faith, if you will. So I'm going to slaughter the firstborn. And I, that means that I'm going to trust that this female animal is going to give birth to many more after that. I'm going to trust the Lord that he's going to make this animal, whatever the animal is, ox or um, lamb, fruitful. Um, because the first thing that comes out, I'm going to, I'm going to eat. I'm going to feast on. It. I'm going to take it up to the sanctuary, or if it's if it's blemished, I'm going to share it with people around me, and that's that's pretty remarkable about 
the, the future orientation of these families with regard to these, you know, their their property, if you will, that there's an immediate loss. <laughs> uh, and you pay God first, if you will. So God, God gets paid first and gets the unblemished males. And even the blemished ones, um, you, there's a kind of payment made to your community and every, everybody feasts. So there's this priority of feast over economic value. Um, and, and, and every Israelite has to trust that God is going to do for them what he promised in the future. Uh, because right now, I'm looking at this beautiful animal, and it's a loss. Yeah, that's a great point, Jeff. And I think that I, I said when I introduced the firstborn law that it's anticipating chapter 16 and the festivity, the laws of festivity. But that also links it up with the previous section of chapter 15 and shows that it is a Sabbath rule because these animals are not permitted to work. Uh, they're not permitted, as you said, to to uh, be used for economic, for their economic value. You can't you can't fleece this these sheep. They b belong to the Lord. Um, so that that fits with the the general tenor of the Sabbath law. It's another permutation of Sabbath. The other thing that I uh, you use the word uh, waste, which I think is an intriguing one, uh, and it's uh, I mean this is connected to a, a thought I had looking at the passage. Verse nineteen says, "You shall consecrate to Yahweh your God the firstborn males." That is to make holy. Um, you acknowledge that the firstborn males are God's property. That's what something is holy when it's God's property. But then the, what you do with the animal is take it to the central sanctuary if it's unblemished, and you have a festival. So it's consecrated to the Lord for your consumption. Uh, and even the ones that are blemished are consecrated to the Lord, but they end up being consumed. So uh, there's, there's this interesting connection between uh, uh, something that is set apart to the Lord and the idea of waste uh, and excess and surplus, uh, something that's consecrated to the Lord that ends up being a pure consumption uh, and not economically productive at all. It's just given for the sake of uh, festivity. I think I heard someone just call this holy wastefulness, um, which of course it's not wasteful. It has uh, it has a use and a and a and, a, and it's it's productive, but not in the way, not in an economic way that you, we might be used to thinking. It's productive for the glory of God. It's productive for the community um, in ways that if we're so focused on the monetary value of the animal, we'll miss, we'll miss it. Um, and, or the Israelite would miss it. So they are being trained <laughs> to appreciate the, uh, the priority of feasting over economic prosperity, if you will, or over economic concerns. And they can also see themselves and these animals as the law of the firstborn was instituted in the context of the Passover in chapter 13 of Exodus. And so the setting apart of the firstborn relates to Israel being set apart as the Lord's firstborn. Yeah, I think, uh, Jeff, what was passing through my mind is a, a, a holy excess. I think it was in the back of my mind was uh, one of the uh, a French postmodern thinker, Georges Bataille, uh, who has wrote uh, a lot on excess surplus under the heading of, uh, of sacrifice and uh, uh, sacredness. I don't know Bataille well enough to know how 
uh, reliable or, or insightful he would be on this, but uh, the, the idea of a connection between sacredness, holiness, and something like waste uh, is, I think there, there's some, some germ of that in Deuteronomy 15 here. I've been struck going through um, this chapter, the way in which um, all these different things that we've discussed, the um, the poor, the release of the um, slaves at the appropriate uh, times, this kind of idea of wastefulness that uh, Jeff has, has mentioned, all, all this is the responsibility of individual um, Israelites to do. This isn't sort of... Um, enforced by some sort of top-down, very top-heavy um, structure, but is, is down to the individual and, and is controlled by this, this phrase sort of um, gates. I think in my translation here, I, I sometimes have it as uh, towns, but that was the case in the previous chapter as well. The the Levite in your town was to be, uh, Levite in your gates was to be provided for and the poor within your gates. And um, we thought about that um, phrase, you're poor. And it just strikes me as very um, important the way all this is fundamental to the whole um, nature of God's covenant um, with Israel, that they are to um, marshal and to um, provide for what God has entrusted them with, within their gates. Um, I've just been going through um, the rich man and Lazarus um, parable in, in Luke, and it's a very jarring um, parable because the rich man is not described as some great um, sinner, um, ends up in hell. And and you, you think, well, why? You know, we're not told anything. What's, what's the evidence of his evil life? And the, the evidence is Lazarus, um, a poor man who is said to lie at, at his gates. You know, that, that man, Lazarus, is the rich man's poor, if you like. And so his kind of treatment of Lazarus is not just kind of, you know, failure to act charitably. It is a rejection of the one of the main premises of Israel's covenant and, and a rejection of the God of the covenant. And throughout this chapter, actually, in verse uh, in chapter 15, there's a lot of moral language that tends to get um, uh, softened out a little bit. So the translation I have talks about um, if there is an unworthy thought in your heart and your eye looks grudgingly on your poor um, brother. But I mean, this is the term evil. You know, if there is an evil thought um, in your heart and your eye looks evilly on your brother and um, it, it's, yeah, it's just striking to me how uh this aspect of care for the poor is 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 so um central to the covenant between god um and his people thank you again for enjoying this episode of the theopolis podcast for more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.